good morning again. Chapter 1, there it goes. Colossians chapter 1. As we continue to work through Paul's letter to these Christians that he never met. I often felt I can a little bit relate to Paul as I'm at a church where everybody's sort of a new face to me. Uh, I've had some folks ask me, how many visitors do you, did you have last week? And I go, well... A lot of them, (laughs) at least to me, right? But we've been journeying through this book together, and today we'll be looking from chapter 1, verse 21, to chapter 2, verse 5. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Let's read. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions." For the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me from you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of God. Now, the word disciple and discipleship are words that we use in church, but not really outside of church. I call those churchy words. We use them in these walls, but the concept of discipleship and the practice of of discipleship are everywhere. Because a a disciple is simply a student or a follower, and discipleship is simply the training of a student or a follower. Everyone is being discipled every moment into something, and every one of us is discipling someone else into something. When we go to work, we go through times of training, and many times those are day-to-day on-the-job training to be formed into better employees. This is being discipled into being a better employee. We turn on the news, and anchors often seek to disciple us in the latest 
political talking points. And most of us in this room understand discipleship because we try to and are often successful at making disciples of UK basketball as often as we can. Followers, fans, people that we want to be trained in this understanding. But the Holy Spirit speaks through Paul to the Colossians and to our Crossroads family this morning about the importance of Christian discipleship. And here we encounter four elements of Christian discipleship, and each of them come together to form sort of a simple guide or one overarching statement for us to understand. You'll see this in the bulletin and on the screen behind me. Discipleship happens when God's people proclaim God's word for the purpose of Christian maturity in the power of the Spirit. You'll see four Ps God's people proclaiming God's word for the purpose of Christian maturity and the power of the Spirit. Or you could think of it as the who, the what, the why, and the how of discipleship. We'll spend our time this morning unpacking this statement by walking through Colossians 1 and 2, stopping along the way to look at uh, some aspects of Christian maturity and some realities of effective discipleship before considering five commitments or action steps we could take to further our fellowship and our discipleship with Jesus. We're going to be jumping around this passage a bit, but I think the best way to summarize this, and I have this down in your bulletin as some memory verses. If you want to get the big picture of what Paul's trying to say, look at Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29 with me. This is big picture. Here's what Paul, if I could distill it down, wants us to see. He says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. The Holy Spirit first inspired this passage to show us the who of discipleship. Who disciples others? Who trains others into Christian maturity? Many think the answer is church leadership. And while Paul did have a special role to play in this, didn't he? If you look in our passage, Colossians 1 verse 23... Paul talks about how they were not shifting from the hope of the gospel that that they heard from which had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and from which I, Paul, became a minister. So the apostle Paul was a minister discipling these people. But he went on in 24 and verse 24 and 25 and look what he said. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. But the text also tells us that everyone who is in Christ, not just leaders, not just Paul, but all of us, who are in Christ, have an obligation to make Christ known to others. We all have a stewardship similar to what Paul had. The who of discipleship is all God's people. God God has made all of us ministers of the gospel. Verse 28 makes that clear, where he says, Him, Jesus and His gospel, we proclaim. Not simply Paul saying, I proclaim it, but we as the people of God proclaim this Jesus. And remember that the Colossians had come to Jesus not because of Paul's ministry. Paul tells us he never even met them 
face to face, but because of a guy named Epaphras. Now, people name their kids Paul, but I have yet to meet anybody who named their kid after this Epaphras guy, right? He's kind of, a, he's kind of just a nobody. In many sense, Epaphras was just like we are. A simple nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody, and his name is Jesus. Remember, Paul talked about Epaphras in Colossians 4, and he emphasized that Epaphras was one of you. What are God's qualifications for you to disciple and help someone else grow in their faith? That you be a disciple. That's it. If you're a Christian, you have been called to help disciple others. See, what Epaphras shared, when Epaphras shared Jesus, Jesus was at work. I hope this would take some weight off of our shoulders that we're simply called to be faithful, but it's Jesus who does all the work. Consider Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Look what he says. And you... Colossians, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his, bo- in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus did the hard work. Epaphras simply stepped forward in faith and obedience. Epaphras didn't have to know all the answers He didn't have to win this this tight philosophical argument. Epaphras didn't even have to do the work Jesus did of dying on the cross or making hostile people feel at home with God. No, Epaphras just sought to be faithful. And friends, it's the same with us. God does not call us to do what only Jesus can do. And that's to save someone. What he does call us to do is simply to be faithful and to step forward and to seek to be intentional to make disciples. All of, all of us are called to live faithfully. And that leads to the question, faithfully to do what? Now we see the, the what of discipleship. So it's God's people who are doing what? Proclaiming God's word. Proclaiming God's word. Did you notice in verse 28 Him we proclaim. Discipleship happens when we proclaim God's word to others. It's all over this passage. But we must be careful. He doesn't say, Him we proclaim when we stand behind a pulpit on Sunday morning in front of a group of people. He doesn't limit this simply to one event on Sunday or simply or solely to preaching. Verse 28, he goes on to talk about him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And he opens up in this passage, what does it mean to proclaim and warn and to teach? How does this work? Verse 25, he talks about how his goal was to make the word of God fully known. And when Jesus gave his great commission, he called us not simply to teach, but to teach disciples to obey all that Jesus had commanded. Teaching that was actually applicable to their life. Teaching that would say, you, you should live and walk differently because you've heard this. But it isn't just that. It's Christian teaching that's applicable to your life, but it's also doctrinal. It's knowledge of God. Look how he continues 
in verse 25 and 26. He goes on when he talks about making the Word of God fully known, and he tells us to, be, to, to speak about, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What's that, Paul? What are you, what are you talking about? He says, a mystery. Now, in the Bible, at least for the Apostle Paul, a mystery is something that prior to the ministry of Jesus and the apostles was spoken of in the Old Testament, but might have been sort of prophesied or spoken of in types and shadows. It wasn't as clear, but it was certainly there. But they didn't, but didn't, maybe hadn't all been put together in the right pieces. And he says, this mystery is a reality that's come to fullness because of the person and work of Jesus, that all God spoke of found its yes and its amen and its fulfillment. All the pieces of the Old Testament fit together perfectly in the person and work of Jesus. The mystery is now out in the open, a reality. And verse 27 tells us a little bit of what this mystery is. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Part of this mystery is that Christ is in his people. That by faith, God dwells within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of our future hope. And he goes on, flip over to chapter 2 and look at chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, where he talks about having full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That, friends, our message that we're to proclaim is a person. Jesus, He is the mystery. Saints, we proclaim, warn, teach, speak, communicate God's Word to others. And when we do so, we speak about Jesus to the world. And friends, this means that our teaching is aimed at both knowledge of God, we've got to help them to know who He is, and life with God, how to live differently in light of that. Paul wants us to see how glorious that calling and privilege is. We have words of life, words of a glorious mystery, words of hope. We have a gospel, which means good news. But why? We've seen the who of Christian discipleship, God's people, the, the what, which means that we're proclaiming God's word, but why? Why do we do this? While we do it to reach the lost, that isn't the emphasis of this text, is it? Yes, we want the lost to be reached, but the Holy Spirit inspired this text to talk to us about teaching God's word to people in the church with us. How we're to think about discipling other Christians. What is the goal, the definition for discipleship that that we saw for the purpose of Christian maturity? For the purpose of Christian or spiritual maturity. And it comes again right out of verse 28. Look what he says, Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity is the goal. And we see in our passage three aspects, I think, of what Christian maturity looks like. Some of us, I think, when we think about a mature, godly Christian, we can 
point to a person, but we don't quite know how to put it in words. And Paul gives us some words to think about of what it means to walk in Christian maturity. He says, first, Christian maturity begins with perseverance. Perseverance. Notice for me verse 23. He gives kind of a surface level here. Verse 23 If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And he says, chapter 2 offers us another picture. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. For though I'm absent from you in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is part of what discipleship's after. Part of what we're here for as a church when we're discipling others and fulfilling the mission of Jesus is we want to encourage and enable others to stand firm in their faith. We want to encourage others to be able to plant their feet firm on gospel convictions. In our day now more than ever, we need to plant a flag on certain unchanging truths. Discipleship exists for us to persevere in or to help us to continually confess the faith. But discipleship's also after progress. That's the second thing. Progress. I want us to notice chapter 2 again, verse 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, which was just a nearby city, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." Maturity means, yes, we hold to the essentials firm and secure, but it also means we make progress and we grow together, encouraging one another, being knit together in love and growing in our knowledge of Jesus and his work. So many of us are content with the fundamentals and with these sort of surface-level relationships. And it's no wonder our faith doesn't seem important to us or it seems like we're bored with it, Because we're not pursuing forward in progress. We aren't committed to grow with others. And if that's the case, then our faith will remain anemic until we decide to feed it. And one of the reasons biblical, healthy churches exist, one of the reasons this church exists, is to feed our souls, to help us to grow up together as a body into Christian maturity. Can I ask, what are your plans to grow and take the next step in your faith? Sure, corona has impacted all of us, and especially what what our church is often trying to accomplish. But even if corona wasn't here, have we made plans to grow? Friends, none of us would ever be able to get healthy in our body without a plan. And friends, none of us will ever be spiritually healthy and growing and thriving without a plan. How are we as a church, have we thought about what it means to grow together, to have a process and pathway for discipleship? Or are we content as believers being busy with church meetings, but not necessarily busy with progress in the Lord? Maturity means we persevere and we make progress in the faith. And third, 
Maturity means we protect one another from deception. Notice verse 4 of chapter 2. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Friends, we need to be aware. Look at me. There are people, movements, TV shows, organizations, and beyond that want to delude you and deceive you. And they will try to do it with plausible arguments. They want to make war against your faith, and they want to do it with things, notice he says, things that sound plausible. Not things that are the the wild and out there, things that are plausible. Friends, there's stuff all over your social media feeds that seem plausible. That, friends, he says, might delude you. And he says there's only one way to stand firm. There's only one thing we must look to in the midst of this, and it's verse 3. We look to Jesus in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That we must see that Jesus is the source of our spiritual growth and our spiritual knowledge. We're so tempted to say, well, I need Jesus plus something. I need Jesus plus this or plus that. But Jesus plus actually subtracts Jesus out of the picture. That's how kingdom math works. You add anything to Jesus, and it knocks Jesus out of the whole picture. Friends, we must be careful and serious about growing together in maturity, and that means looking to Jesus together. Discipleship happens when God's people proclaim God's word for the purpose of Christian maturity. And now we turn to the how of discipleship. The who, God's people, the what, proclaiming God's word, the why, for the purpose of our perseverance and our progress and our protection. But now he gets to the how, in the power of the Spirit. This is a huge task. (laughs) And nothing could be more important than that we do this. And we see two realities on display here. Our push and God's power. Those are the two realities of effective discipleship. Our push and God's power. Notice chapter 1, verse 29. We see both of these here. For this I toil, struggling. There's push, our push, our effort, our intentional effort to grow and to help others grow. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There's God's power at work within us. So we see the realities. Paul had his push, his toil, his struggle, but he was doing it by God's power, his energy that was powerfully at work in him. We can't do this on our own. We need God's power. Paul repeats himself. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. There was a struggle with this. This is hard work to disciple others. Discipleship is difficult. There's a push, our push with it. And verse 24, I think, is especially heavy. Chapter 1, verse 24. Look, what, look what's there. 
Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. That's a heavy verse, isn't it? It's an interesting verse, isn't it? What does it mean for Paul to speak of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? You could grab 50 different Colossians commentaries off of a library shelf, and you might have 50 different thoughts from folks on how all this fits together. So while I want to be careful not to be overly dogmatic, I do think it's, it, we, can, we can make sense and get our heads around what Paul's saying here in this verse. Paul certainly isn't saying that somehow his suffering adds to the work of Jesus as if the work of Jesus on the cross was somehow insufficient to save. He isn't saying that because Colossians 1 just spent, we saw this last week, all of the last paragraph from verse 15 to 20 proving otherwise and telling us that Jesus is enough and that Jesus is all we need. So he, so he definitely isn't saying that. In fact, Paul has spoken this way elsewhere. In the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 30, he spoke about a man named Epaphroditus. There's another great baby name for y'all looking for some biblical baby names. There's Epaphroditus, and notice what he said about him. Philippians 2 verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So he's speaking about the Philippians. And what had happened there was they had band together and bought a huge gift, whether it was money, there was probably some books in it. There was a lot of different stuff that they got together. And they wanted to give to Paul. And Epaphroditus was the delivery guy. He was the guy out of the group who was charged to take this all the way to Paul and to get it to him while he was in prison. And Epaphroditus, we hear in Philippians 2, risked his life and we're told he got sick and was close to the point of death, but the Lord had mercy on him and he completed the job. The package got there. And Paul is using this language as sort of an analogy here. The Christian standard Bible tells us when it says Paul was filling up, it says he was completing what was incomplete. To lack in Philippians 2.30 was not that the gift wasn't sufficient, but that the gift needed to get to Paul. It needed to be delivered. To complete it was to make sure the package got to its destination. So Paul is saying, I believe here that his suffering and his toil and his push served to deliver Christ to God's people. That he could get Christ's work, which was solely enough, but it wouldn't be able to be delivered to other people unless he was willing to suffer to take it to them. Unless he was willing to suffer and be inconvenienced in order to get it to them. And of course, Paul's writing this from a prison cell, displaying that he lived this with his life. That's another aspect of this text we should see in verse 24. He said that this suffering was for their sake, for the sake of his body, that is the church. He did it in order that the gospel might be delivered, filled up, brought to its intended audience. And this means that God's word will never be effective in the life of God's people unless we're willing to suffer to get it there. Unless there's going to be some toil, some struggle, some push, some work. Paul's push, his toil, his ministry, he said, was nothing without suffering. We see Paul's push, the first reality 
of effective discipleship. But we also need to see the second reality, and that's God's power that was at work in him. God's power that was at work in him. Friends, notice the start of verse 24. He talks all about his suffering for them, but he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. In the midst of all this, he says he's in a jail cell with nothing. He says, I'm rejoicing. Friends, Paul ain't producing that. Paul in himself didn't make that happen. He says it was, as verse 29 says, God powerfully working in him. As believers, we need to recognize none of us are free from suffering. If you came to Jesus hoping to get a life free from suffering, you signed up for the wrong road. Because following a crucified Messiah certainly isn't going to free us from some inconveniences and some pains and hurts in this life. But he does promise that in the midst of that toil and struggle and push, we have and are empowered by, verse 27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And there's nowhere we go that we're alone and nowhere that we'll go that he's not in us and empowering us and producing work in us that our discipleship and our growth, whether it's our personal growth or the growth of others, is only possible in the power of the Spirit. We often try to manufacture these sort of things, but we need God to work. We need God to work. Discipleship happens when God's people proclaim God's word for the purpose of Christian maturity and the power of the Spirit. Friends, who or what is discipling you? Or who will you disciple and how? Friends, the option simply isn't there to do anything else. And I want us to consider our discipleship both as a church and as individuals in application by considering five commitments for the days ahead. See, Christian growth is intentional. No one has ever drifted toward Christ-likeness. No one has ever just drifted toward being a better disciple of Jesus. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes commitment. Five commitments for the days ahead. One, commit to Sunday when it's safe. Commit to Sunday when safe. I won't dwell on this long, but consider that the Bible's clear in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. You can write this verse down. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That we need this. I need this. That Sunday morning is a time when God promises to gather with us as we gather together. And that Sunday morning worship is one of the primary spheres for Christian discipleship. One of, the, one of the just beginning step one things we can do is to come on Sunday and hear God's word preached. To make this a priority. And that means to make a conscious decision on Saturday. Because hear me, Sunday morning church attendance is a Saturday decision. You decide if you're going to be here on Saturday. Because if you hope that you're just going to wake up and come Friends, the dog, the kids, the mother-in-law, whatever it is, will keep you from being here unless you make plans to get up early, get ready, get your affairs together, and get there. If you wake up and hope to go, you ain't going. 
And we need to be here because God says it's for our spiritual maturity that we be here. Make a commitment to gather with God's people and to make it a priority. Of course, let me say this. Of course, COVID-19 is hindering many of us from gathering right now. And it's also hindering many of our other activities. And I want to say to those who may be at home watching this or those who are here and may have to be in and out, that we totally support and love you, even if you have to be at home in the midst of some of this. This is unusual times for us. This is unusual times for us as the people of God. And for those who need to stay home or who need to come in and out and and feel safe, we want you to know we love and support you. That's why we do a video here for the Sunday morning message, not as a substitute, but as a supplement while we live in these unusual times and seek to live faithfully in this season. If you're home or need to be home due to COVID-19, we want you to know that we're so excited for when we can gather back together and that all of us love you and pray for you and miss you. And we can't wait for when all this is over and we can all be back together, right? But in the meantime, let's do everything we can to make gathering together a priority. We need this second. Commit to find a small group. Commit to find a small group. We grow personally. We grow as a whole body. We grow together as families. But we need groups. And now groups can look different. But we need groups so we can obey the one another's of the Bible. It's hard when we have everybody in this room to fulfill the biblical command to pray for one another, encourage one another, and and my favorite one another of the Bible, put up with one another. It's difficult to do that in a room this size. With these many people here, that's why we need groups. They're an effective way to do this. And I would ask that you pray for your leadership here as we figure out how in the world that's going to (laughs) work. When we're in the days of COVID-19, we're praying about, I don't have anything to share, but we're praying about what it might look like to potentially get back to some sort of normal. Don't know what that is, don't know how that looks, but pray for us in that. And if you have feedback or thoughts, feel free to to let me know, and hopefully we'll have some updates. But we commit to gather together, we commit to groups, because these are two spheres in which we can grow together. But third, we commit to personal devotion. Personal devotion. How can we help others grow to love and pursue Jesus if we are not pursuing Jesus? I've seen a lot of you carrying around this little book, uh, A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God, which is an excellent book, by the way. It's the first book I ever read more than once. I don't know if that's a brag on myself or what, but one of the few books I've ever read more than once. I'm excellent, excellent book. And he has a part of this book. Here's what he says. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each other one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to be unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. That's worth the price of the book. Just letting you know, he says, when you gather together... That is perfected when your private spiritual life is purified. He continues, 
The body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. The whole church of God gains when the members that compose it begin to seek a better and higher life. He says, in other words, you'll get more out of this when you're getting more out of this. When in your private time you're pursuing the Lord, you'll better pursue God together with his people. Commit to make personal devotion a priority through praying and reading the Bible every day. Has your personal devotions fallen on hard times? I want to help you with this. If you would like to restart your Bible reading, I actually put together a Bible reading plan that takes you through the New Testament in 90 days. And it's on our Facebook group. If you're on that, you can get it there. You can email me. My church email's right there. Feel free to get it. But it was put in the Facebook group last night. You can get it. You can print it off. And what it does is it takes you through the New Testament in 90 days. And the best part about it, it even has one day off a week where if you miss or whatever, you can make up or you can get ahead. Whatever you want to do, I understand life gets busy. So look at that. Work through it. It's called New Through 90, and it'll take you through the New Testament and about three months or so. I'd encourage you, if you're just wanting to restart, if what you're doing is good, keep doing it. But if you want something just to jumpstart your personal spiritual life, here's something for you. Some people often ask me, where do I start? Here. There's a place to start. Read through the New Testament in 90 days. And maybe find some other people in the church to do it with you, if you're interested. I'm sure some folks would love to. Fourth, Our fourth commitment to discipleship at Crossroads, commit to every member ministry. Commit to every member ministry. Hear me here. The growth of others is not my job alone. We are a body, the Bible says, and the body ministers to itself from all of its parts. Hear this from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And Jesus, it says, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers, or shepherds and teachers, that's pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Do you notice that? That the pastor, I exist, according to the Bible, not to do all the ministry, but to equip us to do it together. And that the growth of others, the maturity of others, the well-being of others is our job together. It is all, it's a shared every member ministry. And until we all take responsibility for it together, we will not see the movement of discipleship that we would like. And then fifth, commit to mentorship. Commit to to mentorship. So first, commit to make Sunday a priority, when it's safe, commit to find a small group, commit to personal devotion, commit to every member ministry, and commit to mentorship. There's one more sphere here, this one-to-one, this Paul and Timothy, this iron sharpening iron, this how Peter and Mark were older men, we younger men need you. We need to be encouraged and discipled. And younger women, don't you long for life with these older women to walk with you and to help you and to be with you? We need you. And we've got a great opportunity right now in the midst of COVID to via phone calls, video calls, whatever, 
to reach out, and even just to encourage one another. They don't have to be complicated. They don't have to know everything. Just pray together, confess your struggles, and encourage each other. Do the best you can, and God, Jesus, will do the work. Seek to be faithful, and Jesus will do the work. Consider today there's somebody in your mind who you know you could help or could help you better follow Jesus. Find them, pursue them, and set up time maybe once a month or so to meet together, to pray, confess sin, and encourage one another. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He will make them something that they were not before. That God is in the process of remaking all of us as we follow him. And that means discipleship is not an option. Discipleship is a natural outgrowth of what it means to follow Jesus. And we must grow and help others grow. As disciples, we are called to make disciples. But we don't go in our own strength and power. I'd point you one more time to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Great verses to commit to memory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And may we toil together toward the end of our growth and maturity and our joy in God with all his energy at work within us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're good and kind to us. We thank you that you've said to follow you and you will make us into fishers of men. You will make us something that we currently are not. Lord, help us to be people who love you, to be people who pursue you, to be people who know you, and people who are growing in discipleship together. Make us a church that's obeying the Great Commission You've promised that all authority is yours and to go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe and to do all that you command and you promise you to be with us always to the end of the age. We don't go alone. We go in your power. But help us today in response to your word to make commitments today that would lead us toward being intentional to grow together, to walk together, and to together love you more. Thank you for your word and for its work in our hearts. And may we respond in worship and in obedience to it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.